Before we get started with the podcast, if you don't know, Business Made Simple actually has an online school. It's businessmadesimple.com. It's an online university, and I say that in quotes, of course, because it's not accredited. But we basically wanted to put together the real courses that you really needed in order to grow and scale your business. We have courses on how to write your mission statement, of course, on clarifying your message, course on creating a marketing sales funnel. We just put up a course on proposals, how to write a really great proposal. We just filmed our course on a communication strategy, and that will go in. What is your communication strategy when you release information to the world, even internal information? I'm about to film life plan and productivity. And then by the end of the year, we're actually filming a sales and customer service curriculum. It's going to be incredible, and it already is incredible. In fact, Dr. J.J. Peterson, who's sitting here with me, yes. <laughs> you are actually going to teach one of our courses yeah. that is in the university at Vanderbilt University. Yeah, in their master's program. In their master's program. Is it, is it an MBA business. or what is it? No, it's a master's of marketing, Owen School of Business. Yeah, wow. I'll be teaching our uh, marketing made simple, essentially how to create a sales funnel at Vanderbilt. Yeah, well, that's incredible. <laughs> and how much money do you save if you do the online version as a course? <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to, to ask that question? I, don't, I mean, I'm still like getting in there, so I don't know how much we really. Well, ours put. is two hundred seventy-five dollars, and you yeah. get all the courses. Yeah, yeah. Vanderbilt that, I is think what? That's how it's much, like it's got to be at least three hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, I think that's how much the ID <laughs> card costs. So, <laughs> no, we love Vanderbilt. We love, love the Vanderbilt. relationship we have them, but we just wanted to bring that up because it's really, really good stuff. And we have a number of universities who also are interested in teaching our stuff. Give us a call if you're a university and you want to teach our our curriculum. We can help you figure out how to do it. But it's, it's so practical. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about it. Yeah. It's just everything we do is how's this going to help people make money? And I don't mean to be all about money, but if a business nope. doesn't make money, it dies. Well, that's even what I said when I presented the course. I said, this isn't about theory. This is about practicality. I said, I've studied the theory. So right. let me study the theory. Let me give the practicality to you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, is what's missing in a lot of university systems. So kudos to Vanderbilt. Yeah for putting our, our course in there. If you're interested in getting it for $275, what you don't get is frat parties, too much <laughs> drinking, and football games. That's extra. Uh -huh. JJ mm -hmm. and I can provide that. Yeah, for a fee. <laughs> <laughs> a simulated fraternity house yeah. environment costs a little more. For just more. a small fee. But if you don't want that, just go to businesspadesimple.com. Make sure you get the online university today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., today on the show, we have Dan Heath. I love Dan. Yeah, it's, it's Dan's second time on the show. I know. We, we, we actually had Nicole Walters last week, and yeah. it was her second time on the show, so we're, we're bringing people back. Yep. It's old home week. Twins week. And Dan's got a, a new book out called Upstream, mm -hmm. and it's basically a book on how to do some innovative thinking to prevent problems rather than try to solve problems after they become too big. Really? I got to be honest with you. Yeah. When I read the briefing, I thought, huh, you know, that's going to be a little hard to get my head around, yeah. and I'm curious, honestly, about how this book's going to do. Within five minutes of the interview, yeah, I just realized this is a book about a lot of things, but it's really a book about innovation and how to disrupt nearly anything. Mm. Because if you want to disrupt any industry, you've got to go back and reverse engineer an existing problem and solve it earlier yeah. in the process, yeah. and that's how you disrupt 
an industry. And he talks about how to be able to do that, how to think that way for even your own business. Yes. He goes into, I think it's Rockford, Illinois, uh-huh. the second biggest city in Illinois. And uh-huh. he talks about uh, how uh, they are pretty much the only city in the country who has tackled the homeless problem and mm. how they did it. That's amazing. And they did it by disrupting basically homelessness. That's unbelievable. And so when you think about what we're doing yeah. with Business Made Simple, we're, we're sort of you know combining with and disrupting the university system. Yeah. And I say that not to take the university system and throw them under the bus, but to say they know it. Yeah. They're, they're having to disrupt themselves and yeah. figure it out. And if they don't, they're going to be That's right. inconsequential. Yeah. Like they're going to be done. What I love about this is one of the things that actually makes probably me most mad about myself Mm-hmm. Like things I get really frustrated with myself is when I find myself caught in a situation where I go, well, that's just the way it is. Right. Like if I ever find myself right. saying that, I get really mad because I know that's actually probably nah, it not the case. doesn't have to be that way. doesn't have to be. And I get mad at other people too, you know? And there's moments where you're in conversations with friends and they're in a cycle of just like, nope, nope, you start offering, suggesting, no, no. And sometimes you kind of have to be there for a moment. But I think once you realize, okay, I've kind of hit the bottom here. But life doesn't have to be this way. Business doesn't have to be this way. If you're frustrated with an employee, it actually doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to always be angry (laughs) with somebody you work with or always be angry with the process or always be frustrated over the lack in your product, right? If your customers are constantly coming to you and going, I'm frustrated with this, and all you're saying back to them is, well, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is, then you're stepping into what we've talked about before, like a victim mentality. You're letting right. your circumstances dictate your success instead of actually stepping in and looking for how do I solve this problem in a new way? It's so much of industry, so much of existing industry that's hard to break into mm-hmm. exists because people have a problem, right? And companies, industries, institutions help them solve that problem. Yeah. What if you actually looked at one of these billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar yeah. <laughs> problems and said, well, that's taken. Solving that problem is taken, but is preventing the problem taken? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. there's a billion or has dollars. They in created there. another problem. That's right. That now we can actually speak into and help as well. That's right. So he's speaking our language when he talks about problem it. solution. It was an enlightening conversation, and it was one of the better conversations that we've had. By the way, he's a little younger than me, but we grew up in neighboring towns. Uh-huh. I grew up in Pearland, Texas. He grew up in Clear Lake, Texas. So we had some similar high school experiences. And so whenever we talk, we sort of reminisce about, honestly, Tex-Mex barbecue, (laughs) 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 that sort of stuff. But we had a really meaningful conversation. Dan asked, he kind of interviewed me. He asked me some conversations because he was reading Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And he basically said, are you the same person? Mm. You know, And a lot of people have asked that. We thought it was such a, a nice conversation that we hit it on the back of this podcast dun, 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 dun. so after i say thanks as always for listening to the building story man podcast music is brought to you by andrew bell blah 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 hang on because there we actually put about 10 minutes of the second conversation at the end of the Ooh, i've never done that wait. before no i can't wait to hear i just that. thought it was really meaningful in fact we i sort of faded into the interview and he said wait a second are we doing an interview now and i said oh well let's stop and we'll formally start <laughs> An interview. And so it's all the way up to the formal start. If you want to know what people talk about before we say, it's good to have you on the show. Yeah. Uh, this was an especially uh, oh, I'm I excited think, uh, about neat that. conversation. So stick around at the end for that. But I won't uh, belabor any longer. Here's my conversation with the author of Upstream. His name is Dan Heath.
Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you. Great to be back. We actually had to stop our conversation because we've been talking for like 15 minutes and we finally <laughs> had to say, wait, we should start, we should like record a podcast. <laughs> One of the things that we, we were just... We have common roots. We have common roots. Yeah, we both grew up in South of Houston and... The tough suburban streets of South Houston. The tough suburban streets of South Houston. <laughs> That's exactly it. Baybrook Mall. Home of the Crips and Bloods. We didn't talk about this uh, before the show, but one of my classmates, well, a year or two older than me, I didn't know him, but I just became aware that the guy who wrote Crazy Rich Asians- Are you serious? Is a Clear Lake Falcon, like literally a year or two ahead of me. Uh, Isn't that wild? Wow. And you just found that out? Yeah. I just, I somehow came across it or or maybe one of my classmates, I can't remember how I I figured it out, but- So does that, did that frustrate you because you're- are you the most famous Clear Lake High School graduate? Oh, God, no. I mean, there's there's got to be a, uh, a thousand people more famous, including our basketball coach, who is, at, at least last I checked, the winningest uh, high school basketball coach in history. Kudos to him. I would say you're more famous than him, though, but maybe because I'm a business guy and I read business books. <laughs> yeah, we're in this weird <laughs> business book mafia now. <laughs> well, regardless, you have a book out called Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. And before we get into what the book is about, I know how writers work. They start seeing something that thing starts fascinating them. They get very curious about it. Then they think maybe there's a book here. What was the seed that made you want to talk about problem solving before the problem happens? I actually have a a very clear answer to that because I started a file in 2009 called Upstream. And and what had triggered it was two things. The first is very easy to tell quickly. It was I I heard a parable that's well known in the field of public health. It's often attributed to a guy named Irving Zola. And the parable goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic beside a river and you've laid out your picnic blanket, you're about to have your meal when you hear a shout from the direction of the river and both look over your shoulders and you see a child thrashing around in the river, apparently drowning. And so you both instinctively dive in, you fish out the child, you bring them to shore. And just as you're starting to settle down a bit, you hear another shout and you look back, it's a second child also apparently drowning. So right back in you go and you rescue that child and And then it's two more. And so begins this kind of revolving door of rescue. You're in and you're fishing children out. And then no sooner you get to shore, there's more to save. And it's starting to get fatiguing all of this rescue work. And then you notice your friend swimming to shore, stepping out, and he starts walking away as though to leave you alone. And you go, hey, where are you going? I can't do all this work by myself. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember hearing that and, and just being kind of amazed at, it's great storytelling, you know? It's like yeah. you hear that and immediately your mind goes in 10 different directions of what the metaphor applies to. And, mm-hmm. and we're talking in summer of 2020 and there's a couple of very obvious things that are, that are conjured up by that story. And, and it just points up the fact that we so often in life get stuck in this trap of, of always reacting to things after the fact. Yeah. We put out fires, we respond to emergencies, but we rarely make our way upstream to deal with problems at their root. And so when I heard that parable for the first time, it just kind of planted a seed and, and I kept thinking about it for 10 years uh, before I finally realized, you know, if I've been fascinated by something for 10 years, it probably deserves a book. Were you thinking uh, when you started writing the book that you would mostly write about leadership, about business? What part of culture or society were you most interested in talking about 
when it came to preventing problems? Yeah, most of my books in the past with with my brother Chip have been, you know, they're books on the business shelf. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, when I started working on Upstream, I found myself more fascinated by by societal issues than than by business issues. There there's still plenty of business in the book, but there's also stories of homelessness and substance abuse and domestic violence and, you know, really kind of meaty societal problems. And I was interested in the people who weren't daunted by those stakes, you know, people who had dug into really intractable seeming problems and made progress by trying to, you know, to go upstream to try to prevent them before they happen. As the book evolved, it's like it, it became it just became a wider and wider zoom lens, I felt like. Are you a believer in, and I know this simplifies things, and life is more nuanced than this, but are you a believer that most things have a root cause, that homelessness and opioid addiction and uh, an inefficient government, that there's there's something that's causing, that's bringing all that together, for instance, corporate greed or something like that, is part of this journey for you trying to find root causes? Yes and no. I mean, I, I sort of believe in 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 a very messy, multivariate stew of causation. That for any particular issue, you're never going to get to the end of the mystery, like a like a Sherlock Holmes story or something. Where aha, it's this. But, but I do believe that things have causes, and I think that uh, with the right level of analysis, you can find some of those causes. You can find places to intervene. Let me just tell one of the, the yeah, stories about yeah. um, homelessness, which is one of these classic issues that you could point to two dozen different systemic forces, root causes, convincingly. And and the problem is w- when that's your perspective, that there are these kind of deep entrenched root causes that are the source of the problem, it can make your shoulders sag, right? It's like, what are you yeah. going to do about an abusive childhood or poverty or racism if those are the things that you have to solve in order to combat homelessness, I mean, that's a that's a hundred year mission. And so I studied this city called Rockford. It's the second biggest city in Illinois behind Chicago. And they had become the first city in the U.S. to solve the problem of veteran and chronic homelessness. And so I thought, well, let's go figure out what they did. And when I talked to the mayor, a guy named Larry Morrissey at that time, he was in his third term. He'd been in office for nine years and he admitted to me, he'd basically made no progress on homelessness in nine years. And then nine months later, they achieved that, that honor of being the first city to assault it. I said, well, how do you do something in, in nine months that you couldn't in nine years? And he and his team basically did three things different. Number one, they changed strategy. So the, the lore previously had been you want to get a homeless person into housing, well, first they have to get over some hurdles. They have to solve their, their substance abuse problems if they have them, or they may have mental health issues that need to be addressed and they may need job skills training. And, and it's like, after you run the 110 meter hurdles, then you can earn your way into some housing. They flipped that on its head. They embraced a strategy called housing first, which Mm. says that the presenting problem of someone who is homeless is that they are a human being who lacks a home. So Let's start there, you know, rather than dangle it like a carrot at the end of this journey. Let's start there. That was the first thing they changed. The second and third things they changed, I think, have more relevance for really anyone in an organization. The first is they realized because homelessness is a complex problem, you can't afford for any one uh, person or entity or organization to own it. You have to have 
connection among the people who have different facets of this problem, ranging from social service agencies to the VA, to the health system, to the police department. You know, these were all the people who had some, some angle on homelessness and they brought them together. And then the way they organized their work was they didn't talk about homelessness as an issue. They didn't talk about homelessness policy and kind of engage in, you know, whiteboard fueled brainstorming. What they did was they got granular. So they began to create a real-time census of all the homeless people in the community. I mean, literally, like I, I looked over their shoulders at this. It's a Google Doc, and it lists every homeless person on the streets of Rockford by name, where they were seen last, you know, what's known about their health conditions. And when this, this kind of multifaceted team got together, what they were talking about were particular people. You know, they'd say, all right, who's seen Michael lately? Well, he's been coming into the shelter for lunch several days a week. He's still living under the bridge. Okay, social services, when are we going to have uh, housing ready? Well, actually, we just had a unit opened up. Who's in the best position to make the approach? That was the texture of the work. How important do you think knowing their names were? And of course, I'm not just talking about names. Did it open up the heart? It's both. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I think it's heart and head because the heart piece is obvious. Like it, what motivates these people you know, keep in mind, there are people there from the health system. This isn't their job. There's people there from the police department. This is not their job. I mean, it's it's part of it. But nowhere in their job description is ending homelessness. What motivates them to participate is people. You know, these are human beings who are suffering. These are your fellow citizens literally sleeping on the streets. That's what makes this work worth doing. But then for the head part, what you realize is when you get that close to the issue, you realize you can't abstract about it. You can't just stay at the level of conceptual thinking. You've got to, to deal with things in three dimensions and people have very different problems. Some people don't even want to be put in housing. They have to be convinced, right? And so person by person, what you're realizing is that there are aspects of the system that are broken that you never would have seen if you hadn't channeled, you know, the perspectives of individual people that you had to contend with one by one. You talk about it in the book, uniting the right people around solving the problem. Did you notice anything in Rockford about, obviously, there, there are a lot of people who are drawn to government, a lot of leaders who maybe don't know it, but they just sort of put a Band-Aid on things to get some political attention, and they're not solutions to real problems. And real solutions to problems are sometimes very complicated. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of sacrifice. How did the administration in Rockford actually get people united around knowing the names of the veteran homeless population and getting the housing? And what were some strategies that you noticed they were using? I think, first of all, the by name list, as they call it, was a huge innovation and an unlocking innovation. The norm, if you can believe it before that, was every year, once a year, the federal government required a census of the homeless population as part of HUD regulations. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the previous norm was they'd go out some night, two in the morning in April, and kind of make a, a best effort calculation. And of course, it was wrong almost the moment they did it, not to mention, you know, it, it was absurd to think that you had an accurate count for 12 months after that with the flux of, right. of human lives. And they realized, like, look, we're never going to make any progress unless we know what we're dealing with. And in fact, I've seen, weirdly, I've seen that that same strategy, that by name list, has been the critical 
answer, the critical kind of uh, unlocking intervention in, in wildly different areas. I mean, there's a there's an effort to prevent the escalation of domestic violence in, in New England that uses the same strategy. You know, they go woman by woman. Uh, the Chicago Public School District uh, launched a 15-year effort to improve the graduation rate. And the texture of that was student by student. And so I think there's something critical here, and this is something I never saw coming when I started this research, that in order to help 100 people or or a 1,000 or a million, you really have to start with one. Hmm. And you don't really understand the systems involved until you see them at their most granular up-close level. And I think that's that's a critical part of the learning process. This is really convicting and eye-opening on a number of levels. And, and one is, and I don't mean to be uh, shallow about it, but actually on a business level, just growing and scaling a business where we think about branding and marketing and messaging, rather than actually sitting down one by one with a potential customer and getting to know them. Do you see applications of this sort of methodology all over the place, not just in problem solving these critical human problems, but do you see this in business application as well? Yeah, no question. And it's interesting because I think some of the forces that distract us or prevent us from going upstream are baked into the way we design organizations. So here's my favorite example. At Expedia, the the online travel site, back in 2012, this guy named Ryan O'Neill, who worked in the customer experience group, he was going through some data and he discovers something that just makes his jaw drop. Like he can't quite believe it when he figures this out that for every hundred people who were booking a reservation of some kind online, a, a, a rental car, a hotel room, a flight, 58 out of the hundred ended up calling the 1-800 number for support at some point during their experience, which would seem to nullify the whole point of having an online <laughs> self-service right. travel site, right? And so he, he presents this to his boss and they're all scratching their head going, what in the world? Why are so many people calling us? Come to find out number one reason that people were calling to get a copy of their itinerary. That was the number one reason. And I'm talking about 20 million calls being placed in one year of people wanting copies of their itineraries. You mean the the very thing that they could just print out? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that just the record of what they did is what they wanted. So to be fair to Expedia here, it's not like they just forgot to send the itinerary, like, whoops, we should have thought of that. No, I mean, they were always sending the itineraries automatically, but lots of them were ending up in spam folders or, or people would delete them thinking they were advertisements. And so... As a technical problem, this was a very easy fix, right? You, you change the way you send emails to avoid spam filters and you change the content so people don't think it's an ad and, and then you give people self-service tools so they don't have to call you for an itinerary, right? It's, a, it's an easy fix. It basically went from 20 million to zero in a very short period of time. But here's what I think is fascinating about this. How do you get to the point where you have 20 million calls coming in before this surfaces? <laughs> As a problem. A dashboard light should have come on like, a long time ago. When you get the ago, three yeah. millionth call, like how is that not a warning flag? And I think the answer is something that, that any entrepreneur can relate to, especially uh, ones that have, that have scaled beyond the original founding team. And that is, if you think about the way Expedia was structured, it was divided into silos. Uh, the marketing team, their job was to get visitors to the website. And then, you know, there's a product team that, Uh, It receives those visitors and designs such a fluid, easy interface that they're kind of funneled down toward a transaction. So they're measured on transaction percentage, you might say. And there's a tech team that keeps all the 
features running smoothly, maximizes server uptime. Then you've got a support team and how are they measured? Well, how quickly can we get people off the phone and, and how satisfied are they with the resolution? And so we've divided and conquered, right? It's a big business. There's millions of people involved. We've got it. We've got to carve it out into teams. But if you ask the simple question, whose job is it in this world to keep customers from needing to call for help? The answer is nobody. And in fact, it's even worse than that. No one even stood to gain if that happened. It wouldn't make anybody get a higher bonus. It wouldn't give any of them a better performance review, right? This is the kind of integrated issue that bubbles up between silos. And I think this is a really important point about upstream versus downstream, that a lot of times downstream issues, like a customer that has a problem, realizes they don't have an itinerary and calls for support, that's downstream, it's reactive. A lot of times they have really clear lines of ownership, right? The call center owns that. And in fact, it's even one person within the call center. Like there's one person with the headset on that can field that issue. It's clean. It's simple. But when you change the framing to how do we keep someone from needing to call, you got to have everybody. You've got to have input from marketing, input from product, input from tech, input from support. Even though it's a more important question, even though it's vastly more valuable to the business, it's just a lot harder. Yeah, there's more yeah. friction there. And so a lot of times in upstream matters, you know, the, the same thing was true with that story from Rockford. A lot of times with upstream, we've got to reintegrate the very pieces that we separated intentionally for the sake of efficiency. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Dan Heath in just a moment. Many of you have wanted a business coach, needed a business coach, and so hired a business coach, and the experience wasn't super fulfilling. And it might not have been fulfilling because what you really needed was practical information that would help you make more money, organize your finances, create a better marketing plan, hire and fire people, talent management, and really what you got was somebody who, who was lovingly and incredibly for you. They wanted you to grow. We call that not a coach. We call that a cheerleader. And there's a difference between a cheerleader and a coach. You know, if I made the basketball team in high school and I showed up and the coach, in quotes, said, great to have you guys on the team. Here's the thing. Here's the way we're going to win. We're going to score more points than the other team. That's how we're going to do it. And if we do that, Every single game for the rest of the season, you will be state champions. But that is the key. The key is to score more points than the other team. Here's what I'm going to do as a coach. I am going to cheer you on, and I'm going to keep you accountable. In fact, the second the game is over, and you have not scored more points than the other team, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let you know. I'm going to sit you down and say, hey, they scored 83. We scored 72. And that's why we lost you guys. So next time we need to score, if they score 83, we've got to score 84. It's just math. My friends, you have the worst basketball coach in the history of coaching because that's not what coaches do. Coaches teach you to play the game in such a way you can win. We are certifying business coaches who teach their clients to play the game in such a way they can win. And we are doing that at certifiedbusinesscoach.com. We are teaching you our curriculum, our frameworks, so that you can teach them to your clients, both in one-on-one -on -one situations and in masterminds. We are creating the curriculum, 
the lesson plans. We're even printing a textbook, a giant textbook that your clients can go through and you can take them through. And you will be backed up by Business Made Simple University, all of our online courses. Can you imagine being a coach and having all of the frameworks and curriculum that you need without having to make anything up yourself? And it's curriculum and frameworks that are proven to help people grow and scale a company. If you would like to be that kind of coach, go to certifiedbusinesscoach.com and apply today. You must have thought a little bit in the last 10 years and while you're writing a book about the state our country is in right now. You know, I'm 48, so perhaps this is just a sign of me getting older because you hear older people saying this <laughs> all the time. But uh, I think this is the worst state in my lifetime. I think the civil rights movement was obviously worse and Vietnam was worse and the Great Depression was worse and the Dust Bowl was worse. But in my lifetime, since 1971, since I was born, this is the saddest I've seen the country. Extremely divided, families being torn apart. I think there's progress happening. I think Black Lives Matter is a good movement in general. You know, I think we will bounce back from COVID, but, but at the same time, our national debt is exploding. The wealth inequality is exploding. And yet we have easily all the resources we need, easily to solve this problem. We do not have a money shortage. We do not have a intelligence shortage. We can solve all these problems. And I think easily. I, I really do believe that. I think we can solve national debt easily. I think we can solve the fact that Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security is going to run out of money. I think we can solve that easily. I think we can solve our health coverage problem uh, fairly easily. We just don't do it. Did you ever put any of this thinking into what is the root cause of why we can't work together as a people? As you were writing the book, did you think, you know, if we would just do these things, some of the applications that you were seeing maybe on a smaller scale, if we just did these things as a country, maybe we, we could solve some of these issues. There is a lot that, like you, uh, gives me a great sense of dread and pessimism, but I don't, I don't think I have many original thoughts on that front. You know, I'm, I'm a political junkie, so I'm kind of immersed in, in these depressing uh, news cycles every day. But, but let me flip it and talk about the optimistic sides. And mm. I think there's, there's two things I would point to as a direction to be optimistic about the future. And one is that I think there is a lot of positive stuff happening at the level of the city. Oh, you're not kidding. Yeah, there are. There are. You know, because so much of our politics has been nationalized and, and we're kind of divided into these tribes, we sometimes forget that, that cities still to a large extent haven't reached that level of tribalism. And, and because of that, they can be very, very functional and very innovative. In fact, many of the stories in the book are about cities that have figured out various ways to work on policy issues in a new in a new way. And so I think these laboratories of cities can be a direction of hope for us um, that just as, you know, when businesses figure out some smart, new, innovative way to serve customers better, the idea spreads among the industry and you get competition. I think the similar, a similar kind of force is present when cities figure out smart ways to handle, you know, really thorny problems that they start to spread. So that's, that's ray of hope one. Ray of hope two is, and this will be a long brew, but, but I think it will have a very happy ending. And that is, if you think about just the flow of money in society, 
so much of, of money is triggered by a reaction to problems. The best example of this is the $3.5 trillion health system that we've got that probably 99% of it is triggered by reacting to some problem. Somebody shows up with a broken hip or somebody's got the flu uh, and you go to the doctor and they patch you up and they ring the cash register for that. That's the health system. And if you think about it, if we were starting from scratch, wouldn't you think that we would want a set of incentives to make people healthy rather than just, you know, provide efficient care when they are broken? And yet there are very, very few financial incentives, for instance, for a doctor to keep us healthy, to have us exercise more, to, to have us eat the right kinds of foods, to manage chronic diseases better. Uh, and that's just an obvious flaw with, with kind of the economic model. And by the way, I, I, I mean, I know a lot of your listeners are in businesses. Business is the same way. You know, if you think about uh, your car breaks down, that triggers an economic payment. Mm-hmm. You, you get a divorce that triggers an economic payment to lawyers, but, but who's getting paid to keep your car well-maintained and who's getting paid to keep your marriage happy. Mm-hmm. I bring this thing up, not, not to suggest this is some kind of uh, impossible problem. This is a solvable problem. Easily and I think, solvable. I, yeah. I remember walking through the airport. I'd just been to a, a policy conference, basically state policy think tanks had gotten together in Colorado. And uh, so I was, so my mind was thinking about these things and, um, I'm walking through the Denver airport and I'm realizing Denver airport is a massive airport. I can't find anything healthy to eat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anything. And I'm thinking, you know, the majority, a, a good chunk of our healthcare costs are diabetes and heart disease. So I'm kind of going, well, why don't we just charge a dollar extra for every candy bar, a dollar extra for every soda, and then put that money into the medical system so that you're less likely to buy the candy bar. But if you do, there's a dollar in the system that we're going to use later on when you have a heart attack. <laughs> like there should be someone in the airport just like passing out carrots and broccoli for free. <laughs> and that would you know be another I mean? one. That would be another one. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly it is, is we stand to gain just enormous amounts of value. I mean, so much of our health system is a response to chronic or preventable disease. But, you know, we're in a capitalist society. If no one gets paid, then it's hard to make things happen. So, so that's the problem. Mm-hmm. But, but to flip it on its head and talk about the solutions, because all this was in the, uh, in the category of things to be optimistic about, is there, there are big experiments underway to change precisely those incentives. Like there's a part of the Affordable Care Act that people hardly ever talk about called ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations. And this is a whole wormhole of complexity that I won't get into now. But essentially, the the moral of the story is they're starting to invent ways that, for instance, primary care physicians could be paid more if their patients stay healthier, measured by fewer visits to the hospital. And often the way to accomplish that is by helping people manage chronic diseases like asthma or diabetes so they don't end up in the hospital. Uh, And so that's an example where if we can figure out how to change incentives at that scale I mean, that could be absolutely critical at transforming the way that health happens. Even in the business world, I talked to a guy who runs, uh, what, what is the name of the umbrella company? ANG Services. It runs Home Advisor oh, yeah, and yeah, ANG's yeah. List. Mm-hmm. I think it's ANGI something or other. Um, but he had this fascinating perspective where he was saying, you know, so much of the home 
repair market, you know, plumbers and electricians and handymen and so forth, is running off the same model it was 40 years ago where something breaks and then you frantically look for somebody to help because it's been three years since you needed a plumber and so you don't have one in your Rolodex. And so, you know, in the old days we would have looked in the yellow pages. These days we search the internet and then you call and they're booked up for three weeks, you know, and, and, and that's the way it works. And he said, but you know, when you think about rich people, if Beyonce's toilet breaks, she's not calling the plumber. You know what I mean? She has someone who, who's an, a quote unquote estate manager right. who, who manages all that stuff. And the CEO was telling me there's a lot about what estate managers, quote unquote, do that we could automate and scale. Because he said, look, one advantage of being Angie's List and Home Advisor is we know what kinds of problems people have. And we know what kinds of specific appliances have which specific problems and which skill sets are need needed to fix them and who has those skill sets in zip codes across the country. And he said, what if we could offer people a subscription where you're not paying to have someone come out and break your t or fix your toilet or fix your AC. You're paying someone to maintain your appliances so that they don't break and so that you don't have to replace them after 10 years when they might have lasted 15 years. He said, could we live in a world where people pay a subscription to kind of keep their home healthy and replicate a lot of the value of the estate manager without it being like a literal human being who, who works for you? And so that's, that's a fascinating example of how yeah. – it really is. I mean, that's disruption. That's how disruption happens. Exactly. Like, could we start paying for what we want instead of paying for things that break? Gosh, it's brilliant. Dan, I think we could keep talking forever and ever. Our business, we, you know, we started StoryBrand and wrote a book called StoryBrand. It's a marketing framework, and now we've created an execution framework and a sales framework and, you know, everything you need to really scale up a small to medium-sized business, although we're getting many calls from billion-dollar businesses now. And we put together... Business Made Simple University, you know, a series of online courses, and we are launching our certified coaching program. And the whole agenda for the whole thing, it sounds like, well, oh, Don, everybody's launching business courses and everybody has a coaching program. That's not actually my personal agenda. My personal agenda is to disrupt the university system. Because if we can convince people, look, if you want to work for a small business or a medium-sized business, you don't need to leave school with a quarter million dollars in debt mm. that keeps you from buying a home, which keeps you from gaining equity, which is the number one way Americans gain wealth. You know, so now you're going you're gonna to buy your home at 25 rather than 37. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing, if we could disrupt the university system, college debt, and we could disrupt medical debt and the high cost of medical coverage, you know, the average middle-class American family has lost about $10,000 per family since Nixon adjusted for inflation. Can you believe that? Unreal. And you, you sit there and you go, this is exactly why. Because they gave the money to the university, they gave the money to the local hospital. And they gave, you know, some of it to the government, but it really wasn't taxes that did this. It was capitalism that went awry, and that's not a bad thing about capitalism. When capitalism goes awry, you create new products that prevent the problems in capitalism, you incentivize people to make money preventing the problems where other people are getting ripped off. It's that kind of thinking that I think really changes the world. This is kind of a, a smaller point, but I've been thinking about how the rise of subscription models has just fundamentally changed the attitudes of entrepreneurs. Like, 
you know, it, it, you and I are of a similar generation. Like you, you remember all the late night infomercials for, yeah. you know, dubious uh, workout equipment. And, and the thing was to make the sale, right? It's like you catch someone in a moment of need and you get them to buy a $200 Bowflex or whatever. And then you're done, right? You ship this piece of garbage out to them and they don't use it because, you know, it, it, it's not really a good product uh, and it breaks in three months anyway or whatever. But it doesn't matter because you booked your revenue. But now in a world where every month is a new opportunity for them to churn, it rewires your perspective and your incentives in, I think, a very healthy way. Mm. All of a sudden, it's like you want to remove obstacles for them. You want to make sure they're getting value out of your product. And so, so anyway, this is the reason why I still retain some optimism even in these difficult times because I think some of the the kind of fundamentals that caused friction and that that pushed us downstream may slowly be changing in the opposite direction. I hope so. And uh, I think it's books like yours that are going to stimulate the kind of thinking that actually prevent and solve problems before they become unmanageable. The book is Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. My guest is Dan Heath. Dan, you're, you're making a positive impact on the world. I will say this, um, if you want to disrupt your industry you're going to have to probably do business really differently. And it sounds like this book is going to stimulate the kind of thinking that might, a uh, light bulb might come on over your head that makes you a billion dollars. Who knows? I would imagine the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or everywhere you buy books. Is that right, Dan? It is. If people want to know more about you, where do they go? They can go to heathbrothers.com. That's Heath, like the candy bar, though sadly <laughs> I, I am not related to the Heath candy bar family. Heathbrothers.com. All right, Dan, can we have you back on when you write another book? Absolutely. I love it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. One of my favorite conversations. I know I say it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I also say, anything, I know I say it a lot, a lot. Anything that involves Tex-Mex. I mean, Tex-Mex, you know, politics, politics, yeah. uh, all of that. And uh, fixing problems. And fixing problems. You know, I, I have mixed feelings after that interview. First of all, it's so intellectually stimulating. And I confess, I, I told Dan, I haven't read the book. I've read the briefing of the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading this book. I'm ordering it. I'm reading it. It makes me a little bit sad when you think about what we're paying for healthcare, Mm -hmm. when you think about our racial inequality, our wealth inequality, Mm -hmm. which I understand some people work harder than others, some people are smarter than others, so there will always be wealth inequality. Uh, But we can do a little something about that that is fair Mm -hmm. and right and that the wealthy would actually appreciate. You know, there's just solutions to these problems. Kudos to Dan for doing 10 years of thinking about this issue. Yeah. If you say, Don, that's very humanitarian of you, why should I read the book? Because if you want to disrupt your your industry, yeah. he gives you a formula. If you've ever wondered, does it have to be this way? Right. This is what you want to read the book. Like that. Yeah. That- I mean, that's the main reason I want to read the book is yeah. because as I talked to him, I just kept thinking, if I read this book about every fifth page, I'm going to get a great money-making idea. Yeah. You can just feel it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, thanks for coming on. Uh, we always appreciate having you. Uh, such a gentle spirit and and such a uh, just a fount of wisdom. You're always welcome on the show. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.
It's good to talk to you again. You know, we, you've done my show before. I remember. Yeah, we, last time we figured out we were practically Clear neighbors Lake. growing up, right? Yeah, I grew up in Pearland. Unbelievable. Pearland High School, back when it was a cow town. Now it's a booming suburb. Is it, I haven't been back there in years, man. Yeah, I was just back there because my buddy Pierce was running for Congress, and so he went. I went with him door to door. He lost, but went with him oh, door wow. to door. The whole town is just completely, completely different. Never go back. For years, I would go back to Clear Lake because I still had a bunch of friends there, and, and then gradually they moved away. But every time I would go back, it was just more and more suburbanized. Like It was just like mega malls and strip centers yeah. and giant Home Depots and cheesecake factories and shit. Um, and, you know, the only reason, there's just one reason, and I think you'll agree, to go back, and that's Tex-Mex. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I I spent a lot of years in Austin, so that's like my... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's my... I, I think Austin blows away, at least that part of Houston. Torchies is what I... Did you ever have a Torchies? No, Torchies, you're the second person to bring up Torchies, and it must have moved in after I left. I left in uh, 91. Yes, same, same, same. I mean, there's literally... I mean, this is so embarrassing to admit. There is not one, like place for food that I would ever go back to in Clear Lake. I mean, all I ate was like, like Olive Garden was a fancy meal. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't that's, think there was one like authentic Texas. local restaurant that we ever went to. Clear Lake is a little different. I mean, if you get into Friendswood Pearland, you've got some one-off barbecue places. Yeah. You know, some family-owned. You still have a few of those. Right. But they're they're going by the wayside. By the way, guess what I guess what I was doing this morning? What were you doing? Reading a million miles in a thousand years. You're the one who read that book. <laughs> <laughs> you saw, you heard the cash register ring. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, that's an old one. Oh, well, it's not that old, but it's. When it's, did that? When did that come out? That would have been uh, at least ten years ago. About ten years ago, I rode my bike across the country ten years ago, and I wrote about it in that book. So probably about eight years ago. Not that long ago. You know what's interesting is your your voice in this book. It's so different from like your voice on the podcast. You know, I changed. I mean, I really did. I never would have guessed that, that the same person is responsible for both. It's very interesting. I've had people, uh, well, I've written two business books now and writing a third. And I've had people come up to me and say, hey, does anybody ever confuse you with the guy who wrote Blue Like Jazz? And I'm, like, I'm like, they do. My wife, my wife often confuses me with that guy. But it's a fair statement because I'm not, ex it, it'd be a great study. I'm an Enneagram three with a four wing. And those books. I have no books, idea what that means. Oh, sorry. It's like a personality typing kind of thing. But the three is driven to succeed, extremely ambitious. The four is staring at their belly button, very self-aware, wondering what life is about. <laughs> and I wrote, all those books out of my four wing and all of my business books out of my three wing. Huh. But, you know, also million miles, I'd already started kind of the weight loss journey, but, but I was like almost 200 pounds heavier in the few years before I wrote million miles in a thousand years. And now I'm wait, 200 pounds heavier. Yeah. I was 387 and I'm at 200 right now. Wow, man. But, but I lost most of it more than 10 years ago. And then I still have 20 pounds to lose, which is actually harder than the 200 for some reason. God, that, I mean. So it's a different, it really is. It's like a completely different human being. And yet there's no moment to point to. The only thing I can say is like I wrote a bunch of, I wrote about six or seven memoirs. Million Miles was one of them. And then started a business where I was on stage and I started a business teaching people marketing. 
and then also hired a staff, and that made me have to wake up. You know, I think today I have to wake up and make thirty grand a day, or I lay somebody off. So there's something about just the necessity of you have to compete that changed my whole personality. There's got to be a book in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I sense the next memoir brewing. I mean, I'm just it's fascinating, you know. And it's like, how do you? This is a weird question, but but how do you know? which one is the the truer you or how do you know which one is, is something that you should well, be? Well, but the reality is people change. And if they don't change, they're not healthy because living, breathing things change. You know, trees change, flowers change. Everything is constantly changing. When you reread that book, are you saying that it doesn't f- sound like you anymore? I haven't reread any of my past books ever, but if I were to go back and read, especially Blue Like Jazz, I know I would have one criticism of myself because it's my criticism looking back. And my criticism would be, you're such a wimp. You were such a wimp. You complained. You had a victim mentality a little, a lot more than I do now. But I will tell you this, Million Miles in a Thousand Years, Blue Like Jazz, those books that I wrote a long time ago, they're better books. They're better written. They're more thoughtful. The prose is better. And they're better books. I am happier as a human being and more healthy now than I've ever been. Mm. But I write worse books. <laughs> but I make more money. So I don't know. Yeah, you got to net it. I think my, my memoir would be from 400-pound fat guy to happy sellout. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I want to just forget the podcast i just want to talk to you, you offline psycho an hour. psychoanalyze this is, this is <laughs> well maybe we'll put this as a bonus episode or something because chad was recording well i want to sell your books man when did it come out when did upstream come out it came out at the optimal time for a book right march, <laughs> march the third oh right before pandemic lockdown so you know well really, wait were you able to sell some because we had a book come out about 10 days later. Oh, did you? Okay, so you're in the pandemic club, too. We literally didn't push it. We pre-sold 12,000 units, and the day it came out, we didn't talk about it. <laughs> because it's called Marketing Made Simple, and it felt like, are you guys completely tone deaf? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. We, we literally sent out, you'll love this. I did it with my a co-writer, JJ, who actually co-hosts this podcast with me. We had dollar bills printed, but we replaced like George Washington with my face or JJ's face. And then we use that as the paper to pack the book in. <laughs> so you mm-hmm. open the book, and we send them to all these. We send them like five hundred people, and um, it was. I like, got one of those. Oh, did you? yeah. I was like, how yeah. tone deaf can you possibly be? When there's a global <laughs> pandemic. It's like, hey, let's talk about money. <laughs> Here's a box of money. People are losing their jobs left and right. We're like, hey, try to spend this. It's got my face on it. <laughs> so yeah, we were embarrassed. We didn't. But how did you? But you you caught it maybe a little early. Not really. I mean, yeah. I had a good launch week because I'd pre-sold a bunch, but then it just hit the wall. And then, you know, it's kind of dug itself out of the grave, though. Um, nice. Thankfully, uh, I guess just as people are, you know, beginning to carve out time to read again and stuff. So, uh, I mean, look, as you and I both know, it's impossible to complain about book sales when the world is going to hell. So, uh, Right, right, right. But weirdly, the themes of the book <laughs> are are uncannily appropriate for the moment. I'd had no idea I was writing a current events book when I got into this thing. I've been dreaming about this thing for about four or five years, and um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a book called Build the Middle Class. I bought buildthemiddleclass.com for like eight grand a couple of years ago. 
And I basically want to write a book that says, look, you know, that there's two major problems happening in society. One is Republicans and Democrats are more incentivized to fight with each other than they are to fight for the American people. That's problem one. And then problem two is the media is incentivized to make that fight even more heated. Yeah, conflict sells. Yeah, and even the, like today I'll go and I'll vote in the primaries here, but very few people vote in the primaries to choose you know, who are senators, who's going to be on the ballot as our Senate candidates and those kinds of things. And um, I learned this with Pierce Bush when I was in Pearland going door to door. That so few people vote in the primaries. The only people who vote in the primaries are actually extremists on the left and the right. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So only extremists end up on the ballot. And so the normal people who would really just love to solve problems and kind of don't care, you know, about some of these issues, we just don't get normal candidates anymore. We get we get extremists. And so I want to write a book sort of exposing that, and then potentially run for Senate in Tennessee as an independent. Oh wow, man. Good for you. As an independent and basically run more or less against the Republican and Democratic Party and just say, look, these are very respectful candidates. They're very respectful people, but they're part of an institution that's hurting our country. And um, George Washington actually looked at political parties the way he looked at um, lobbyist firms, that they have an agenda. It's a personal agenda. It's not a patriotic agenda. And we are now being controlled by them. Everybody I've talked to about that message has said, oh my gosh, you're on to something. And again, this is it's four years away before I, I've got three other books I've got to write before then, but um, I'd love to get some time with you. Three other books you've got to write. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that that dream actually takes, I'm not naive, it's going to take millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I'm willing to spend it. But I want it to be my own money, and so you know the company's growing; it's doing really well, and I think, you know, God's going to give me the opportunity to do this. I'd love to make a little documentary about running for Senate as an independent. Of course, I'm going to lose, right? But you run for Senate as an independent, make a little documentary about it, get a book out about it. If you can change the way 20% of the population thinks, and if they start thinking, look, if you're a, I don't mind if you're a Republican or a Democrat, but if you're a diehard Republican or Democrat. And you wait to decide what you think on an issue based on what the other party thinks. <laughs> and then you just think the opposite. You are the problem in this country. And you're wasting enormous amounts of our money. I mean, enormous amounts. And you're not letting us get to the solutions. Let me give you an example. Right there in Clear Lake, you know, they built that new hospital over around Sagemont. You know the hospital I'm talking about? No. Well, there's a hospital over, it's really close to your high school. Okay. And my mother died in that hospital. She oh. died of lung cancer about uh, four years ago. And for two to three days, labored breathing. Thankfully, she wasn't in pain because she was just on so much morphine. But I went around to the doctors, the nurses, and said, look, you know, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know how my mother's going to pass. She's going to pass. She's going to pass soon. I would like to know how to make this easier what I need to do, do we need to get her into hospice? Do we need to get an ambulance to move her to a, a care center? How is she going to die? And nobody would answer my question. Nobody. I mean, mm. it was the weirdest thing. And finally, a nurse pulled me aside and she said, look, because of the Affordable Care Act, we can't answer your questions about death. I said, what are you talking about? You're a doctor. It was a nurse. You're a nurse. I don't understand. She goes, we can't. She said, we could have in the original piece of legislation... But Sarah Palin 
took that part of the legislation and spun it and made it look like Barack Obama wanted to establish death squads. <laughs> and so in order to get it passed, they took it out of the legislation. So here's an example of one party seeing a piece of legislation that would really help people and saying, wait, if we spin that and make it look like this, we can gain power. And so the other party had to take it out. And because of that, you and I cannot really navigate how our parents are going to leave this world without experiencing excruciating pain. That's one issue, and it's over and over and over. And I'm just kind of tired of it. I would love to continue this conversation some other time because this is probably not a five-minute conversation. No, but I, don't think so. uh, I just want to plant two seeds. One is I think you've got the right prescription for our world 25 years ago. You know, Ross Perot era, you know, we got these two parties, we need a third voice. I think the real and and this will surface my real thoughts on politics, but but I think that the real problem is that the Republican Party has become an extremist party. Like, I I don't think it's like the old logic. Yeah, And that's the hard thing, because as soon as you start talking about extremism, the reality is you're right. It is one side. Now, it's not that the, you know, there's tree huggers and, you know, there's extremists on the left too, but the, it's a fraction of the percentage. It really is. I mean, just look at the two candidates being put up. You've got this kind of milk toast Biden on one side. and He's a Republican. <laughs> he's an old school Republican. He's got he's my a vote. He's senior Republican. He is. Yeah, exactly. He absolutely is. So I think that's that's one thing to grapple with is, is, is it really a third party issue or is it just we've got one party that's kind of gone over the bend? Well, the issue? messaging won't work if you attack the Republicans. No, I know. I know that you lose. That That's the problem with that. But the other thing I would say is rather than run for Senate and lose, why not run for mayor and win and and do something and, you know, let your example, you know, bolster you up? I mean, it may be less exciting, but. Yeah, the, because the calling is on federal issues for me. Mm. Growing up in Texas till I was 21, 20 years in Portland, Oregon, seven years now in Tennessee, you know, I just feel like America's my home. It's really federal issues in fixing the federal government. Being a mayor, you know, it's an executive position. I, you know, it's really more about getting the message out and seeding this idea of what if the problem is actually divisiveness and not the other side. But you're right. I mean, it, it, at this point in time, especially in the Trump era, it just looks like the right wing has gone cuckoo. And hopefully that'll come back. And the swing. guy that I mentioned, um, the mayor of Rockford briefly, his name's Larry Morrissey. You should talk to him. He's he's actually an independent, uh, and it huh. sounds like you guys might be. Uh, he was talking about a potential independent gubernatorial. I don't remember what the election cycle is in Illinois, but uh, but yeah. So you you guys might have things to talk about. Anyway, just a thought. Yeah, well, he's going to inherit a shitstorm there, <laughs> especially the budget. My goodness. Yeah, well, he he might be the first governor not to go to jail in the last <laughs> twenty years or whatever. <laughs> Dear God, you were in Austin. Where are you now? I'm in uh, Durham, North Carolina. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, I've been in, in this triangle area for 12 or 13 years now. I love it here. Yeah. Well, that's a great area. My goodness. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I sure appreciate the conversation. Yeah, it was fun.